Live from Gloucester, this is The Saturday Breakfast Show with Darren Lister and you are listening live. A very good morning to you and a happy new year 2023. Today we are talking habits. What are they? How do we form them? How do we break them? Is it a good idea to try and change them? Everything to do with those New Year's resolutions that we might have already abandoned will be coming from our show this morning. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TT Radio. Good morning and Happy New Year to everybody from this very grey, very wet, very perfectly weathered, in my opinion, Gloucestershire. Um, I'm not going to lie, I love this type of weather. Uh, Looking out of my window right now, I've only just turned the light off in this room uh, so that I could open up the curtains. Um, And it is blustery, it is grey, it is not raining right now, I don't think, uh, but it could do. I've lit a candle. Everything is very cosy. I am just kind of enjoying my life right now. Um, And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Uh, When we get there, I want to talk about how we can use our habits and and our our New Year's resolutions uh, that we may well have given up by now since it is already the 7th of January um, in order just to make our lives a little bit better. Because I think ultimately that's what we all want in life, isn't it? Is just for life to be that little bit better. Um, you know, we all want to to live our best lives. And it can be quite often frowned upon to try and do that, I think, particularly in in British society. You know, we still have those class remnants, we still have that idea of knowing your place. And trying to fight outside of your place, trying to fight to make your life a little bit better, can be seen as being, I don't know, selfish or self-absorbed or even narcissistic in many, many ways. And so I kind of want to I want to look over those ideas today. I want to look at why we are not always supportive of each other when we want to make these changes. I want to look at why we're not always supportive of ourselves when we try and make these changes. And I want to think about what we can do to make these changes stick. Because I think 2023, for everybody, should be a time of being the very best version of you that you can can be, whatever it is that might look like. Uh, Now, if you've seen my tweet this morning, you will know this was in fact not the show that I had planned to do. (laughs) Um, I changed my mind um, about an hour ago. And so I've, I've postponed what I wanted to do today for a couple of weeks and I think there is nothing wrong with that. Um, Again, the the flexibility, response to new ideas is something that as teachers we really ought to embrace, we really ought to get on board with, but of course it's also something that we as teachers um, are often um, criticised for you know, when we went through our training, those of you who are currently training or who are ECTs, you will be very much aware of this. We are um, we are judged 
on how we deliver our lesson plans. We are judged on how what we do in the classroom compares to what we have written down on our sheet of paper. And of course, we all know that that's actually not how a lesson works. We all know that that can't be how a lesson works because we need to be responsive to our students. We need to be responsive to our own uh, philosophies about them, our own ideas, our own interpretations of what they can do and what they can't do, and to change our lessons accordingly. But quite often, if we change our lesson accordingly, and it then doesn't follow what's on our lesson plan, if we are being observed, if we are being learning walked, any of the, the myriad of things that has us judged, we are judged down for that. We are judged down for being responsive. Um, but we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. We should always be responsive. We should always be fluid with what we plan to deliver. Uh, in order to make sure that we are making the most of the time that we have, that we're really maximizing everything that we want to do. And so that's why I changed my t the topic of my show this morning. Um, I was going to talk about schema, uh, and we will do that in a couple of weeks' time, because that is something I'm very interested in, that is something that I still want to do. But at the same time, you know, I wanted to talk about habit forming, and I realized this morning that my first show of 2023 is in fact the best place to do that because many of us will have made our New Year's resolutions. Many of us by now, because it is the 7th today, so we are a week in, many of us will have broken our New Year's resolutions already um, and either be guilting ourselves over that fact or not. And so I realized just this morning that this morning is the perfect time to talk about these things. And so that's what we're going to do, because we are flexible, because we are responsive, because that is a professional attribute that we all need to have. So please do, if you are listening live, remember that you can text in via the Podbean app. Tell me about your New Year's resolutions. Tell me about whether you have broken them already or talk about whether you tell me whether you are sticking steadfast to them. Uh, you can call in if you would like to call in and talk to me about your New Year's resolutions. That is also an option available on the Podbean app. You can tweet me at Mr. D. Lester and tell me what your resolutions are for this year. I'm interested to know what you are planning on doing, both personally and professionally, to really make sure that you are living your best life in this 2023. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. With the majority of pupils returning to schools this week, the new year has brought new announcements and new challenges for many in the education sector. Government advice about illness and staying away from education settings if you're sick was shared, and the issue of strikes remains a hot topic. Pressures on school leaders continue with The Guardian reporting that many head teachers are broken, at risk of heart attacks and exhausted 
as a result of the erosion of services for children and families, meaning the burden of support is falling on the shoulders of schools too often. So as the new year begins on a duller note than any of us might like, here are the top stories that have caught the eye of Teachers Talk Radio News this week. In Manchester, the Morning Star reports that students at one of the city's universities have launched a rent strike. Students at the University of Manchester are using the strike to press their demands for an end to what they describe as extortionate rents and their requests for a 30% cash rebate. Organisers say that more than 30 students per day are joining the protest, spurred by the combined effects of the cost of living crisis and poor quality accommodation provided at too high a cost. According to the National Union of Students, half of England's students are facing financial difficulty, with three quarters of these saying they expect this to have an impact on their studies. A previous rent strike in Manchester in 2021 was successful and students hope to replicate this outcome in this new wave of action. FE Week reports on Ofqual's decision to disband its committee of experts who advise on exam standards in favour of a more flexible approach on policy advice. The Standards Advisory Group has been active for more than a decade and was set up to help the exam watchdog maintain standards. Ofqual confirmed that the committee will be replaced to reflect a broader remit, such as expansions in vocational and technical qualifications and apprenticeships. Ofqual has faced criticism at no upheaval over decisions and communication during the pandemic. Deputy Chief Regulator Michael Hanton described the change as positive and will secure quality and fairness for all those who take and use qualifications. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who recently announced his ambition to have all young people study maths to the age of 18, has faced a barrage of criticism about his plan. The I newspaper reports that Robin Walker, chair of the Commons Education Select Committee, feels that the PM should be focusing more on the early years sector to boost education levels instead. He calls the maths plan highly challenging, citing the nationwide shortage of subject specialists as the biggest barrier. Mr Walker, Conservative MP for Worcester and a former Education Minister, highlighted issues around recruitment and retention as people with maths qualifications are quite employable elsewhere. So it is a highly competitive market when it comes to drawing people into teaching. He added that focus on the early years sector would be the most effective way of supporting children describing it as embarrassing that England's childcare system is rated so poorly when compared to other countries. The AI also carries news of the decision by Catherine Burblesing to step down from her role as social mobility czar. Ms Burblesing, once dubbed Britain's strictest head teacher, has made the surprise announcement because she believes she comes with too much baggage, going on to say that her propensity to voice opinions that are considered controversial puts the commission in jeopardy. Ms Burblesing wrote of her decision in a column in Schools Week. A controversial figure for many, but with an equally vociferous fan base, Ms Burblesing also commented that she felt the role of social mobility czar meant that she was becoming a politician, but that this was not a skill set she wished to develop. Finally, ITV News reports on how parts of a Turkish Airlines plane have been delivered to a school in Alverston, South Gloucestershire to be turned into a new library. The project, named Flying High by pupils, will see parts of the plane turned into a new outdoor reading area. Full details can be found on the ITV website with artist impressions of the final project showing children and adults enjoying new space. 
This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, did you know I've been doing this show for a year now? Well, if you didn't, now you do. So shower me in gifts and love. I'm kidding. But there is one person or group of people I want you to think about as this term draws to a close. Your tech support. They may, in your mind, be the people that say no to a lot of stuff. They may stop pupils playing games and stop a lot of the web getting into your classroom. But they keep you, your data and your network safe. This week, as some of us are off and others are desperate to be, roll on Wednesday, spare a thought for your techie. They'll be coming in over the break to patch and update. They'll be taking those broken machines and making them work again. These people, who in most schools are like ghosts, if Charles Dickens had had the privilege of tech support, they'd have been the spirits of modern day make do and mend. They wouldn't be draped in chains and padlocks, but come bearing an endless acceptable use policy. As you wind down, or if you have already, A thank you to your tech support will make your new year that little bit easier. Remember, next time you use tech in your lessons, everything is working because of them. As always, I'd love to hear what you want to know about tech. Let us know at TTR 2022. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Have a lovely break. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. I think we were given an old two-minute tech there, um, or Steve just wants to to rub it in that we are going back to work or that we have gone back to work already. It does seem like quite a long time until half-term, uh, but we will get there. We will get there. It has been interesting following the, um, the, the proclamation of the Prime Minister that all students should continue to learn maths up until the age of 18. I have opined about this on Twitter already. Um, if you're not following me on Twitter, please do. I am at Mr. D. Lester, or one word, M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R. Um, and it has been interesting to watch the um to watch the response to it. Because there has been a lot of gut reaction oh, I hated maths when I was at school. Uh, I couldn't wait to drop it when I was 14, 16, whatever it might have been. Uh, and so I don't think it's fair for us to force kids to carry on learning it. And and that's fine. You know, people are completely entitled to, to not have enjoyed their own maths experience. But I do worry that that kind of gut reaction, which to be fair, I've not seen from teachers, uh, but from members of the general public, I think that undermines what's actually going on here, um, because I think a gut reaction of "I didn't enjoy it, and therefore you won't enjoy it either" plays into the um, "things should never change" narrative that pervades education this idea that we shouldn't move forward, we shouldn't progress, because the way things have always been works is something that is quite uh, quite pervasive in our in our field. And, you know, that, that gut reaction of, well, I didn't enjoy it, so let's not force everybody to do it, is representative of that. It's not necessarily wrong, um, and one of the reasons, actually, that our that our 
uh, primary and secondary education is so well respected around the world is the fact that we give our students choice. Um, I speak quite often to our international students at my school and I ask them, you know, well, why, why are you in England to learn? You know, why have you come here from China, from Hong Kong, from Germany, from Russia? And overwhelmingly, for the 11 years that I've been at my school, the answer has been because I get to choose. You know, so many students don't like the baccalaureate model of having to study certain subjects all the way through to being 18. And one of the reasons that our education system is seen as desirable is the fact that they do get to specialise that little bit earlier than they do back home. And so forcing students to carry on with any subject through to the age of 18 does take away that choice. It does take away that desirability that the British education system currently has. And I think consideration does need to be made as to the 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 knock-on effects of that what actually does happen if we have fewer international students coming into this country to study what happens to independent schools where international student bodies are very large if we are just mimicking the same kind of options that they have at home particularly in the age of brexit where coming to england in order to improve your english actually isn't as desirable anymore because English becomes less and less important on the world stage as Brexit takes hold, as the UK has less of a presence on the world stage, as Spanish becomes more prevalent in the USA. If we take away those choices from students, and if we start saying, oh, these subjects are mandatory all the way up to the age of 18, there are fewer and fewer benefits of a study abroad program in the UK. And so we will have fewer and fewer of those international students coming here. And so there will be less money being paid in, in student fees, in student disposable income, in all of that sort of thing that will have an impact on our economy. And I think that is something that needs to be considered. Uh, we also need to think about the arbitrary nature of saying students must study maths. Because maths is just one of a myriad of subjects that are on offer in British schools. And picking that one seems to be random, to be completely honest. As, as a non-mathematician, it makes very little sense to me to just have plucked maths at random. Now, of course, maths teachers out there, you will tell me why maths is very, very important. And I don't dispute that. I do believe that numeracy skills are very important. You know, I'm saying this as somebody who in the next week or so will need to submit his tax return. Um, you know, being able to calculate those things is incredibly important. But it seems to me that maths has been chosen um, completely at random, just as a, this needs to be carried on. You know, the core subjects, English, Maths, ICT, three of those we are told are very important, are compulsory, need to be taught up until the age of 16, all of that sort of thing. 
And we're now being told that one of those is more important than the other two. My mum, who is not a teacher, um, she kind of said to me yesterday that she didn't understand why maths had been picked. You know, ICT, yes, because computers are everywhere. Uh, tech skills are necessary. So she would understand why the government might want everyone to have a higher ICT qualification. But maths seems fairly arbitrary, particularly when again, as a non-mathematician, when you look at the kinds of stuff that is, that when you look at the kinds of things that are studied up to what is currently A-level, you do wonder why people would need to use those. And I think that's the same as in every subject. A-level in every subject has a degree of specialization. If I think about my own subject, if I think about languages, you know, a lot of the stuff that we cover in modern language A-level is not going to be particularly useful, honestly, or interesting uh, to people who don't have a particular passion for that language and that culture. You can learn to speak a foreign language without analysing the books that we do or analysing the films that we do. I really enjoy it because I think it's very important. I think it's a good way for us to discover the culture of the other countries um, but they're not particularly necessary in order to be communicative in those countries. And so I do understand why not everybody wants to do A-level French, A-level Chinese, A-level Japanese. And it's the same for maths. You know, I've, I've looked at A-level maths papers. Um, as somebody who was decent at maths at school, uh, but never had any desire to take it above GCSE. I've looked over A-level maths papers. I had no idea what was going on. Um, and I couldn't figure out why I, as a languages teacher, might need to. So I think if we are going to start saying these subjects are going to be compulsory or this one subject, maths, is going to be compulsory up until 18, then there also needs to be a lot of thought put into what actually is going to be taught. Is it going to be the basic numeracy skills that we as a society need to survive? And if the answer to that is yes, maybe we need to be looking at why that's not done up to the age of 16. What's what's going on that our GCSE students are coming out without those skills? If the answer is no, and it's we want people to have a better theoretical understanding of maths, you know, I can say fine, I can get on board with that. But again, we loop back around to why is the theoretical understanding of maths more important than the theoretical understanding of English, or of foreign languages, or of art, or of geography, or of history, or any of the other subjects that our students study. So I think, you know, it, it is an interesting conversation for us to have. Particularly, again, as we look at the EBAC model, as, as we look at whether that's something we're moving towards to, uh, moving towards, you know, are we looking, are we wanting our students to come out to A-Team with a more well-rounded education? I think that's a discussion to be had. But I think we need to move away from this gut reaction of that's not my subject or I didn't enjoy that at school. And so why should everybody else be forced to do it? Because I think that detracts from the main uh, the main 
purpose of the discussion, which is what is the best education for our students? What are the best educational outcomes for our young people? What will help them to explore their interests? What will help them to explore their passion? What will help them to function in life? What will help them to lead their best lives? And what will help them to best contribute towards our society? Because ultimately, those are the things that education is about. Uh, Tim has texted in. Tim has texted in a couple of times already this morning. Thank you very much. A very happy new year to you. I want you to know that I'm not ignoring your texts about your new year's resolutions. Um, I will just come back to those when I move on to, to, to talk about that. So thank you for those. But Tim has said, the cynic in me thinks it's just a progression of this government steer away from any subject that imparts critical thinking skills. Um, which is fair. I am sure that a lot of mathematicians, any mathematicians listening, would suggest that the teaching of maths does teach critical thinking um, because there are those those reasoning elements to it. But I completely understand, Tim, where you are coming from and this idea that, that we are moving towards those um, black and white, right and wrong uh, mentality subjects and away from things that let you or that encourage you to examine things from different perspectives that encourage you to look at humanity as a whole and to think about what it means to 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 function again as a a human society i don't know i will be interested to follow the discussion i'm the cynic in me doesn't actually think that it will go anywhere, quite honestly, in the same way that the EBAC never really caught on. At least in my experience, if you disagree with me, please do let me know. But in my experience, the EBAC hasn't um, come into the consciousness in the same way that the government seems to want it to. And certainly, if anything, we actually have students doing less in sixth form now than they have before. As the A-level reforms came in and subjects got harder, we've got students now doing three A-levels where they may have done four under the old system. And so the widening of, of learning in the way that we were told would happen hasn't happened. Um, but I would be interested, I will be interested to follow this to see if it does go somewhere, um, to see to see what happens with it to see how mathematicians are reacting to it, um, to see whether they are happy that their subject is being put in the spotlight or whether it is disheartening to hear so many people say, oh, well, I didn't like it at school. Because um, that is quite disheartening. You know, I get that quite a lot when people find out that I'm a languages teacher. The, the, the gut instinct is to always say, oh, I... Um, I wish I tried harder in languages at school, which is always very well-meaning um, and, you know, is nice to hear, but it's also like, oh, so this thing that I think is really important, <laughs> um, you, you, you didn't. And, uh, and, and that kind of leads me, I suppose, quite nicely onto the, the, the habit portion of my discussion today, because I really want to talk about habits. I really want to talk about resolutions. I really want to talk about making change. 
Um, which I suppose is ironic because I'm about to talk about how great it is to make changes, um, having just spent 15 minutes talking about why uh, I'm not necessarily in favour of changing the way the, um, the 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 system is working. But let's let's go back to Tim and see what he texted in about his changes, his resolutions. He says, I think my resolutions, if I can call them that, and that's an interesting thing that I want to talk about, um, are largely inspired by the serenity prayer. I'm working on the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And I think that's fair. I think that's very fair. Um, he goes on to say, I uh, it feels, I'm sorry, it feels quite overwhelming as there are a lot of things I want to change. So I've broken them down into phases across the year ahead and reminded myself it takes around 30 days for something to become a habit. So one day at a time it is. So Tim is borrowing a lot from 12-step um, programs <coughs> in his in his uh, resolutions. Not that I am suggesting that Tim is in a 12-step program at all. Uh, and there would be nothing wrong if he were and in fact i think that we should be able to borrow from these different institutions that that um work on this idea of positive change of taking control of your life um i think those are i think the serenity prayer actually is a very good way to base a resolution to base a change um because there are things that we can't change there just are there are th we don't have power over everything. And I think sometimes a lot of the sadness that we feel, a lot of the struggles that we go through, I think they come from this, um, this, this fight to change things that ultimately we can't, that ultimately we don't have power over. You know, if the government wants to make maths compulsory to all 18-year-olds, it's going to. And I can't change that. Um, short of going into politics, which uh, is is not a skill set that I would like to perfect either. Um, you know, I can't make that change. And so fighting against it is pointless. Um, I'm sure that, again, many people will disagree with me here because many people say, oh, well, you know, that's what unions are for. That's why we strike you know, to, to show that we do have power over things that we think that we don't. But there are many things where ultimately you should resign yourself to, oh, okay, this is happening, so how do I deal with that? And I think that's a very unpopular thing to say. I think that's a very unpopular attitude to have uh, because it flies in the face of the you know you can do anything if you just put your mind to it mentality that that we were taught and that we impart to our students but i do think it's very important to understand what you can and cannot change because i think if you spend too much of your time if you spend too much of your energy focusing on things that you resolutely cannot change then you are just taking away energy you're taking away time from things that you can which is not to say that we shouldn't fight for things at all, because I think if there is any chance of success, no matter how minute that might be, it's worth pursuing that success. But I also think that if 
there is a steadfast no, <clears throat> X is happening or Y is not happening and there is nothing you can do about that, but you still try to rally against it. I think, personally, I think that to be quite foolish because I think that, I actually think that it can become a distraction, to be honest. I think that you can end up um, fighting something that you know is um, unwinnable as a way of not taking a chance that you actually might win. Because I think quite often it's easier to fight something knowing that you will fail so that you can turn around and say, oh, well, I tried, but I knew it wasn't going to happen, rather than take a chance and fight for something that you might win and then fail and then have to face, oh, well, maybe I didn't try hard enough. Maybe I used the wrong tactic. Um, you know, whatever the the actual reason for your for your failure was, it's it's easier to go into a known outcome. It's easier to go in saying, okay, well, I know that I'm not going to win this because uh, you can then prepare yourself for that letdown than it is to go into something thinking, oh, I might win and then ultimately fail. So yeah, absolutely. Accept the things that you cannot change. Have the courage to change the things that I can. Now, courage is an interesting one. Um, because I do think that making any change takes courage. Um, I had, in fact, after the last of my shows before I went on Christmas break, about 15, 20 minutes after that show, I had an email from, um, from Reading University to accept me onto the Doctorate of Education course that I had applied for. Um, I was expecting a decision. I wasn't expecting a decision that soon. Um, but um, I had my, my actual confirmation. Confirmation for the course has come in many stages. Um, as I've had um, lots of conditional offers made and then I've met the condition and then another offer has come in. Um, so it's come in in lots of stages. But I had that confirmation not long after the last show before the Christmas break. And um, I'm very excited. I will start in February. It's going to be a great thing to do. I am also quite scared uh, because there is a risk of failure. And when you are doing a professional doctorate, there is, of course, as I've talked about before on the show, the fact that it's tied up in your identity as a professional. It's tied up in my identity as a teacher. And failure of the doctorate, I am aware, could lead to me feeling like I'm a failure as a teacher. I'm a failure as the thing around which I've constructed my identity. And I need to be very, very careful of that and to keep those things separate. Um, but if I don't do it, if I don't try, then it can't happen. And I don't necessarily believe that that would be a failure. I don't think that everybody needs to get a doctorate. I don't necessarily think that getting the doctorate is will make me a better teacher than somebody who doesn't have one. Um, I just think that the course of study will make me a better teacher than I am right now. And that's what I want to be. 
because I like improvement. I want to improve. I want to get better. And and for me, a course of academic study is a way to do that because I am an academic person. Um, but it does take courage because there is always that risk of failure and nobody likes to fail. Nobody likes to fail. Um, you know, we hear people talk about, oh, you know, I have a fear of failure. And it's very brave of those people to come out and say that. But I think everybody does. Because again, nobody wants to put their energy into something that doesn't work, particularly when it's something they very strongly believe in. And so I think I think the courage comes down to not always necessarily a feeling. I don't think you have to feel brave. I think the courage comes down to doing it anyway. You know, it's kind of like the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz. Um, he wanted to visit the wizard in order to get courage. But actually, it was joining Dorothy on her journey. It was taking the steps. It was doing the action to go and see the wizard that instilled that courage in him. Courage is action. Because you can be brave while being scared. They're not mutually exclusive, in my opinion. So I think that that having the courage to change the things that I can is not about waiting to feel ready to do something. It's not about waiting for that right moment. Because as people like to say, when it comes to getting married or having children or any of those things, you know, you will never feel ready. And I think that applies to many things in life. Um, but that courage comes from doing it anyway. And then, of course, the wisdom to know the difference, which I think is um, what I was alluding to before, you know, understanding the difference between what is and is not changeable, what is and is not worth your energy, and trying to figure those things out. So thank you for that, Tim. I think, you know, that serenity prayer uh, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I think that's a very good way to live your life. And I think adapting that, adopting that into your everyday life is going to be a fantastic way to, to walk into 2023. Um, you went on to say that it, it feels quite overwhelming because there are lots of things that you want to change, so you've broken it down into phases across the year. And I think that's great. Um, I personally like quarters. Um, which as a teacher does seem a bit counterintuitive because as as a teacher, it would make sense for me to break my year down into thirds and kind of do, you know, autumn, spring and summer to align with the three terms that happen in the English school year or into sixths and do each half term. If you're a, a, a term one, term two, term three, term four, term five, term six, county. Um, but I personally like quarters. And I think, honestly, I like quarters as a response to the school year, because I think as teachers, it can become very easy for us to live our whole lives around the school year and to forget that actually there are other ways to break the year down. There are other starting points. Not everybody begins their year in September. Um, lots of people begin their year in January. Uh, lots of people begin their year in late January, early February, uh, because we do have a Lunar New Year coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, lots of people begin their year in November, December. Um, if 
you follow an ecclesiastical calendar that begins the year with uh, Advent. So there are all kinds of, of starting points. There are all kinds of fresh starts. And so for me, liking quarters, so periods of three months, um, I think does come down to remembering that my whole life doesn't need to be dictated by the school calendar. Um, and so because the quarters don't quite fit as nicely with the, the thirds as they might because of that, that period in the summer that according to the school year doesn't exist, but according to, to a calendar year does, um, I think it's a nice way for me to remind myself that not everything needs to be needs to be teachery. Um, Tim has texted in, I like quarters too because they feel more in rhythm with the calendar year's ebb and flow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do think it's quite good to be seasonal in your habits because that's one less thing for you to have to fight against. Lots of us make fitness a resolution for the new year. I'm going to I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to go out running every day, which is great. And there are lots of people who like that. And I've noticed particularly in the MFL community, uh, there are lots of runners. But I'm looking out at the weather right now. And for me, this weather is not conducive to going outside and running. Um, it's not even conducive really for going outside and going on a walk. And I love walking and I love this type of weather. So, but for me saying, right, January the 1st, I'm gonna get up at 6 a.m. every day and go for a run. I am setting myself up for failure that way because for me, that doesn't make sense. That would make a bit more sense in June and July and August when I wouldn't mind going outside. But in January, it makes more sense to me to say, right, I'm gonna get up at six o'clock every morning and get on the treadmill. So my overarching um, resolution might be to get in shape and then I'm breaking it down quarterly, seasonally, if you like, because I'm taking away an excuse. Because I know full well that if that had been, if going out at 6am every day for a run had been my resolution, and I woke up at six this morning, looked outside, saw that it was sipping down with rain, I'd have said, yeah, no, not doing that. And so I would have, I would have failed. And I think it's very easy when you failed once to, to start using those excuses over and over again. When you've looked for one reason not to do something, you will find others. Whereas if you are going seasonally, if you are saying, oh, okay, I don't like being outside in the rain, as much as I like the rain, I don't wanna be out in it. So I will do the treadmill, I will do resistance bands, I will do a YouTube yoga video. You're taking away that extra layer of fight and you are helping yourself to succeed, I think. What you are also doing by setting up in quarters is giving yourself plenty of time to reevaluate. So if you're just saying, okay, my, uh, my resolution in quarter two, so in April, May, June, will be to get up at 6 a.m. every day and go out for a run. You get to the 1st of July, you can then sit down and look at whether you actually did that in April, May, and June 
If you did, then you can carry it on. If you didn't, then you can sit down and go, okay, why didn't I do that? And what changes can I make now in order to um, achieve my goal? So you're not waiting until January the 1st to reset yourself. You're not waiting until January the 1st to give yourself that new fresh start. You are giving yourself that fresh start four times a year. And by doing that, you are more likely to achieve that goal. In my opinion. So yeah, quarters are good. I think I think quarters are very very useful. They are long enough to um, to make the change. They are long enough for something to become a habit. They're long enough to see whether it's a habit that you care enough about to stick to. But they're also short enough that you can make that change if it's not working. So yeah, for me, quarters are good. Uh, for me, quarter one of twenty twenty three is an interesting one. I will start my EDD um, in February. That's my main goal for quarter one, is to make that start. Um, I've got a couple of writing releases that will come out in quarter one. Um, I've got an MA assignment due in quarter one. Uh, and that's about it. Those are my Those are my foci. And that's not all I'm going to do. Because I think that can be the other thing, is that sometimes when we set goals, when we make resolutions, we um, we focus on those to the detriment of everything else. Or we say, oh, well, you know, this cool thing that's coming up, that's not one of my resolutions, so I'm not going to do it. And that doesn't need to be the case. I think it's good to have a focus. It's good to have a few foci um, in order to, to improve yourself. But you don't need to only do those things. You, you can do whatever you want in your life, to be honest. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I'm starting the year quite simple. And the reason that I'm doing that is because of what, um, what James Clear says in his book, Atomic Habits. Now, he says that according to researchers at Duke University in the USA, habits make up about 40% of our behaviours on any given day. That in itself can be quite overwhelming to think about because that in itself kind of takes away an idea of choice. If 40% of our day is made up of things that we do automatically, things that we do without thinking, because that's what habit is, an ingrained behaviour, an automatic behaviour, then that makes it feel like we have much less choice in terms of what we're doing. Um, but that seems right to me. Habits account for about 40% of our behaviours, because habits are everything from brushing our teeth through to tying our tie, through to having breakfast, uh, you know, all of those little routines, I suppose. You know, is there much of a difference between a habit and a routine? I don't think so. So James goes on to say, understanding how to build new habits and how your current habits work is essential for making progress in your health, your happiness and your life in general. 
because it's our habits really that make up who and what we are. Because if 40% of your behavior is habitual, then that means almost half of you as a person, half of your life is a habit, almost 40%, 40% of your life is a habit. So if you're not enjoying those habits, then you're not enjoying 40% of your life. If you're not changing those habits, then you're not making progress in 40% of your life. So while habits are unconscious, while they are ignorable by their nature because they are habits, it is actually very important to shine a spotlight on them because they make up such a big proportion of our lives. Now, in Atomic Habits, he talks about the best way to build habits. He talks about the best way to make changes. And um, step number one, I'm going to kind of summarize this. The, the second chapter of the book is, is what I'm going to do for the next half an hour or so. Um, if you can, do do read the book. Um, check out the library, buy a copy. It is very good, in my opinion. But step number one, uh, James says, start with an incredibly small habit. Start with an incredibly small habit. He says, when most people struggle to build new habits, they will say something like, I need more motivation, or I wish I had the willpower. But research shows that willpower gets fatigued the more we use it. Or, to fit quite nicely in with what Tim said about seasonality, willpower, motivation, ebbs and flows. It comes and goes, it rises and falls. Um, Professor BJ Fogg at Stanford says that this is the motivation wave. So we're not always going to feel motivated to work on our new habits. There will be that initial rush of, of euphoria, that initial rush of endorphins, that initial rush of desire to change when you make the habit, when you've identified the problem and you want to change it. Then there will come a sense of feeling that your personal identity is being attacked because all of a sudden you are saying, oh, well, how I have been up until this point is not good enough, is not right. And nobody likes to feel like that. Nobody likes to feel like they've not been good enough up to a certain point. Then we'll come the acceptance of that and you'll go, okay, well, maybe it wasn't good enough. Well, maybe it wasn't making me happy. Maybe it wasn't what I want. So let's change it. And then that rush of, of motivation will come back. Then there will be a setback because it's raining. You don't want to go out for your run. So you don't. And that makes you feel depressed. So it's, it's these ups and downs, these waves, the ebbs and flows. Actually, they, they um, describe motivation quite nicely. So James says, solve this problem by picking a new habit that is easy enough that you don't need motivation to do it. Rather than starting with 50 push-ups per day, he says, start with five. Rather than trying to meditate for 10 minutes per day, start by meditating for one minute. Make it easy enough that you can do it without motivation. Because if you don't need motivation to do it, you're not being dictated by your mood. So you are more likely to do it often enough for that to become habitual. And I think that's true. 
I think I do think it's very important to be dictated by your moods. It's important to know, oh, I, I'm not feeling up to doing this task right now. If I do it, it's just going to waste time because it's going to take me twice as long or I'm not going to do it properly. So I have to do it again. And so I'll wait until I'm ready. But with some things, um, we will never be ready. And so we need to find these ways to do it. And so by breaking our habits down into small, initially achievable things, it's going to make it easier. And I think this is what a lot of people are getting at when they say, oh, I don't do resolutions. That's the big thing I've noticed on, on social media for the last few years. I don't do resolutions. I do goals. To me, they're the same thing. To me, they are exactly the same thing. Resolution is the nominal, the noun form of the verb to resolve. To resolve means to decide to do something. So a resolution, a goal, it is the same thing. The only real difference is that resolution sounds grander. Resolution sounds like you're going to do this big thing all at once, whereas goal sounds like you're breaking it down. But that's just a very arbitrary difference. If that difference helps you, if it helps you to think of changes as goals rather than resolutions, great. But essentially, there is no real difference between the two. And so whether you are setting a resolution or whether you are setting a goal, breaking it down initially into things that you don't need to think about will be helpful for you. When I was applying for my, my doctoral program, the first thing that I filled in was actually my contact information and my personal information. So, you know, name, age, gender, address, all of that sort of thing. Because uh, I didn't need to think about that. And in fact, my computer auto-filled most of those boxes. So I filled in that page of the application form. I hit save. And then I shut the application form down. And then when I went back to the application form the next day, the, the more academic bits, submitting my um, research proposal, talking about my academic history, linking to stuff that I'd had published, all of that seemed a bit less scary because I had already navigated the website. I had already filled in one part of the form without really having to think about it. So breaking these things down first into something that doesn't need to be thought about, that doesn't need willpower is a good way to start. You then increase that habit in very small ways. That's step two of James's program. Uh, he says 1% improvements add up surprisingly fast and so do 1% declines. Rather than trying to do something amazing from the beginning, start small and gradually improve. Along the way, your willpower and motivation will increase, which will make it easier to stick to your habit for good. We know this because we do this in the classroom. The reason that we have reward systems, the reason that we give out stickers, the reasons that we have merits or house points or whatever it might be, is because we know that rewarding success and particularly rewarding small success helps to motivate children 
to work towards those bigger successes. And yet we tend not to do that ourselves. We tend to assume that if we can't make the big change immediately, then we failed and there was no point. But gradual improvements and recognizing those gradual improvements will increase your willpower and your motivation, which will increase the likelihood of keeping that habit. So when you are building your new habits, whatever that might be, treat yourself like you would treat a child in your class. Give yourself whatever reward it might be for making the smallest of improvements. Give yourself the what went well. Don't worry about the even better if. Don't worry about the my responses. Figure out the what went well, because that will motivate you to do well tomorrow. It will motivate you to replicate those behaviours tomorrow, because that was what went well. As you build up, break those habits down into chunks. So if you continue to add 1% each day, then you will find yourself making rapid progress within the two or three months in this quarterly cycle that we've talked about. But it is important to keep those habits reasonable so that you can maintain that momentum and to make your new behaviours as accomplishable, as easy to do as possible. Nobody likes to do anything difficult. And again, it's why we set ourselves up for failure when we look out of the window and go, oh, it's raining, and so I'm not going to go out and run. So again, if you are building up to 20 minutes of meditation, this, uh, this example comes from James's website, um, split that into two segments of 10 minutes at first. If you are ready to do 50 push-ups a day, but that's intimidating, do 10. Then do 10 again. Then do 10 again. And break it down into these smaller goals. Again, anybody who has taught um, PSHE, anybody that has done tutor period, will know how often we bang on to our kids about smart targets. Um, so often that they roll their eyes whenever you write it up on the board. And we teach that to our kids, but it's not always something that we practice ourselves. So make your target smart. Break it down into something smaller, into something manageable, into something achievable. And then that is how you build up your habit. Step number four, James says, when you slip, get on, get back on track quickly. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody gets things wrong. Again, that's something that we, we say in the classroom all of the time. It's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to get something wrong. It's okay to miss a day of your yoga. The difference between um, top performers and lower performers is how quickly you get back on track. So the top performers in any field will make their mistake, will then turn around and go, okay, that was a, a bad day, that was a bad session, whatever it might be, I'm going to try again. Whereas the, the, the lower ranking performers will let that mistake impact them, will let that mistake put off trying again.
Now, this is much easier said than done. I've spoken on the show before about how a little bit over a year ago, about 15 months ago, I was diagnosed with comorbid depression anxiety. And that can throw up a lot of mental blocks, particularly when it comes to failure, because you start getting in a bit of a an anxiety loop about why you failed, about what that failure means, etc., etc. And it can be hard to pull yourself out of that if your brain is working against you, if your brain chemistry is is making it more difficult. So I think, you know, getting back on the horse after being thrown off, to use that English metaphor, is um, is easier said than done. But it is very important to try to do. And I think, again, as, as trite as it sounds, as, as cliche as it might sound, the, the, the way to think of it is not striving for perfection at all is not having an all or nothing mentality, but just striving to try, striving to do your best and understanding that your best does not need to be perfect. We all want to be perfect. We all want to be very, very good at things, but that's how we set ourselves up for failure. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't strive for perfection. I'm not saying you shouldn't strive to be uh, a top performer because you should, we all should. We should all strive to do our best. We should all strive to reach our potential. But what I'm saying is nobody is perfect. Nobody's potential equates to perfection. And so what you should do is strive to be top of your potential, not strive for perfection. Uh, James puts it quite nicely. He says, you shouldn't expect to fail, but you should plan to fail. So think about what is going to stop your habit from happening. Think about how you are going to react to that failure. Think about what daily emergencies might get in your way and have a plan in place already to get around those. So I did this yesterday. Um, I thought about my my EdD program and, you know, I haven't even started yet. I've not even paid the fees yet. I need to do that today. Um, but I've already thought, okay, how will I fail? H- how will I feel if I fail? How will I feel if I am told that my first assignment was not good enough and I cannot progress on to the next round of the course? What can I do? to mitigate that? What can I do to try and stop that from happening? What can I do in the event that that does happen to mitigate how I will feel? So I don't want to fail. I don't want to be told that I'm not going to progress. I don't want to be chucked off of my course. And I don't think that I will be, honestly, because I'm going to put things into place to make sure that I get as much out of the course as I can. But I am knowing myself, knowing how I react to failure, I am already thinking, right, 
if I fail, this is what I can do to make sure that I don't spiral. And this is what I can do to get myself back on track. So James says, you need to be consistent and not perfect. Focus on building the identity of someone who never misses a habit twice. You know that identity is something that I talk about a lot on the show. I think about this a lot. And identity is very important in habit forming. Uh, Because as I've already said, noticing that you need to change a habit does feel a bit like an attack on your identity. And I encountered this just this morning. Um, Over on Twitter, Sarah Sarah Elliott, um, Magistrate Elliott is her handle, um, tweeted out something from a Teach First publication. And it says, it has long been an urban myth that we can transfer the knowledge and skills learned in one domain to another. For example, learn Latin to improve your ability to learn other languages. And I felt that as an attack on me, because I will always say to my Latin students or to anybody asking why they should learn Latin, I will always say, oh, it's a gateway into French and Spanish. Always. And so to read that somebody has published that that is an urban myth, that did feel very personal. And suddenly I felt myself, first of all, I became very defensive and I thought, oh, you know, don't be so ridiculous. Of course, Latin is is a gateway into approving your ability into other languages. Then I felt questioned because I was like, you know, why would this person not think that? What what is this person what has this person done to disprove that theory? And then I started having to to look at why I believed that and why it was so important to me that that was true. And you know, this this sense of self wrapped up in our habits, wrapped up in the things that we always do, wrapped up in the things that we always say is very important. That's the core of our identity. We are what we do. Is something that I read uh, a couple of days ago. We are what we do. And so to have what we do questioned by trying to change habits, it can threaten the very core of who we consider ourselves to be. So instead of considering yourself to be the person that goes out for a run at 6am every day, why not consider yourself to be the person who does not miss a habit twice? That way you're giving yourself some grace if you do fail to go out on your run. But at the same time, you are constructing an identity of somebody who will go out for their run, who will adopt that habit, they just won't not do it twice. Key number five is to be patient and to stick to a pace that you personally can sustain. Comparison is the thief of joy, um, according to lots of people that I follow on YouTube. Uh, In fact, so many people say it these days, um, I start to roll my eyes when I hear it. But actually, it is true. You need to build your habits at a pace that you can sustain. Because ultimately, you are the one building your habits. You are the one living your life. So if you can't run for as long as... And that's times I talk about running today. Anybody would think that that's a habit that I'm trying to adopt. It's not. 
Um, it's just the first example that came to mind. Um, but if you if if you are wanting to run, and you know you're you're doing couch to five k, and so is your friend, and you're holding each other accountable, but your friend is progressing through couch to five k much faster than you are. That's going to be a way for you to give up. You know that can be disheartening. But actually, if you do give up, that's not going to stop your friend from progressing. Your friend's going to keep going. The only person who's uh, who is disadvantaged by you giving up is you. So don't compare yourself to other people. Don't compare yourself to their journey. Stick to yours and find a pace that you can sustain. Uh, James says, if you're adding weight in the gym, then go slower than you think. If you're adding daily sales calls to your business strategy, start with fewer than you expect to handle. Be patient. Because again, if you set yourself up for failure, if you go, oh, I want to make 20 more calls tomorrow than I did today, and you only make 10, then again, psychologically, that's going to be a bit of a blow. It's going to be a blow to your sense of self because you are suddenly somebody who can't hit their goals. And you're going to need to recover from that. Whereas if you set yourself a lower goal, I'm going to make five extra calls tomorrow and you make 10, that's a boost that gives you more motivation. So your next goal can be, I'm going to make 10, you know, I'm going to sustain that progress. And then you make 12 and that increases your motivation. So again, I'm not saying that you need to underestimate yourself. But if you are realistic with what you think you can achieve and are able to exceed that, you are going to be more motivated than if you go immediately for an unrealistic goal or you go for your top goal and don't exceed that and, and don't hit it. In my writing, for example, I know that on a an average day, I can write 2000 words. I know that on a personal best day, um, I can hit 6,500. That's been my personal best up until now. So when I was thinking about my writing goals for 2023, I've said, right, I want to write 365,000 words across the, across the year, approximately 1000 words a day. I didn't say a thousand words a day in my goal because I don't want to feel like I failed if I miss a day, you know, because if I've had um, seven periods in a row, then parents evening. And so I've I've been in school from 7.30 a.m. till 10 p.m. And I just get home and collapse in bed and I don't write. Um, I don't want to feel like I failed. So setting myself a, a yearly goal, 365,000 words, knowing that equates to about 1,000 words a day, that's manageable for me. And I know it's manageable because it's lower than my average. So yes, I am in fact underselling myself. But actually looking at my stats from this week, Monday, I hit exactly 1,000 words, less than what I should have hit because I know that 2,000 words a day is my average, but because I'm only going for 1,000 a day, and actually 
I'm own, I'm really going for 365,000 over the year, I added towards my goal. So I, I didn't feel discouraged that I only wrote 1,000. Tuesday, I wrote 6,146. So I exceeded my averaging out over the year goal. Didn't hit my personal best, but that didn't matter because I was adding towards my um, 365,000. Wednesday, 2,781. Thursday, 1,155. So, you know, I'm fluctuating, but that's okay because I've set myself a, a lump sum goal and I'm always adding to that. Then yesterday, I hit a new personal best, 7,283. And I think the reason that I was able to do that was because I, I, I was neither under nor overselling myself. I wasn't saying to myself, I only need to write a thousand words today, so when I get to a thousand, I will stop. Nor was I saying, oh, well, you know, my personal best is 6,500, I want to hit that. I just knew that I was adding to my overall yearly word count. And before I knew it, I was at 7,283. So by making a, a goal that is overarching, that is sustainable, I have not only written every day, which isn't always a guarantee, I would like to be, you know, I would like to be the person that writes every day. Um, and perhaps, you know, by making 365,000 words my goal, that was sort of what I was doing because I was going for, you know, write a, a thousand words every day. But I've been that person this week. And hopefully this afternoon, I will write a little bit more. Tomorrow, I'll write a little bit more. And I will have been the person that wrote every day this week. And then I just need to replicate that and replicate that and replicate that. So I'm going slower and going at my pace. Sometimes I hit my goal. Sometimes I surprise myself and exceed my goal. Sometimes I hit a new personal best. But actually, if this afternoon, all I managed to write is two sentences, let's say 50 words, that's not gonna be the end of the world because those 50 words are adding to my bigger goal of 365,000. And that's the pace that I'm going for. That's the pace that I know is right for me. So there we go. That is according to uh, according to James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. That is how we build our new habits. Start with something very very small, increase that small habit in very small ways, one percent. As you build it up, break it back down into chunks. So you're not going back to your small habit, but you're breaking your bigger habit down into chunks. When you slip, and that's a when, not an if, when you slip, get back on track quickly, be patient and stick to a pace that you can sustain. Because habits are 40% of your daily actions. They are not something that is a, a miracle life-changing experience. 
They are 40% of your everyday actions. So they need to be something that you can do every day. And they form the core of your identity because we are what we do. I am the person that has written at least 1,000 words this week. Will at the end of 2023, I be the person who has written 365,000 words? I hope so, because that's the person I would like to be. That, that I suppose that's my main goal. And then my habits of writing a little bit every day is going to help me to be that person. So think about who is the person that you want to be. Do you want to be the person who can remember people's names? Do you want to be the person that speaks Indonesian? Do you want to be uh, the person who exercises for 15 minutes every day? Do you want to be the person who never misses a run? Do you want to be the person who always checks in with their friends? What person do you want to be? How do you want to define yourself? Because that will inform the habits that you need to make. Because the habits are what you do. The habits are the 40% of your everyday. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Professional development is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's something that uh, is is very, very important to us all. Uh, I think most of us, th- those who went back this week, probably had inset at some point. Um, I've got an inset day on Monday. And, and that desire to get better, that desire to change, it's there. It's built into our year. We have so many inset days per year with the idea that we will do extra training in order to build up into the very best professionals that we can be. When you go into your training, um, or if you've already done it, I encourage you to look back over your notes. Think about the things that you learned. Think about the things that the trainer taught you. And think about how you can make those into your habits. Again, don't make the big changes. If, let's say, your your inset was on um, cognitive load theory, and you learnt all about how a, a worksheet shouldn't have lots and lots of pictures on it because that will overload the student, don't immediately make your habit, oh, I'm going to start producing worksheets that have got no pictures on them, I'm going to go through all of my, my Word documents and delete all of my pictures. But make your habit, okay, in one of my classes tomorrow, I'm going to hand out a worksheet that doesn't have any pictures on it. And then do the same the next day and the next day and the next day. Break it down and build it in. And create your identity as I'm the teacher who thinks about cognitive load. I'm the teacher who thinks about questioning. I'm the teacher who thinks about um, rewards. What kind of teacher do you want to be? 
because that's how you build up those teaching habits and that's how you make inset meaningful. Because again, we've all been there where we've sat through inset that we didn't think was relevant, that we didn't find particularly useful, but you were there. And it's kind of, again, it's like we quite often say to the kids, you know, you were there, you have to be there, we have to be in school, we have to learn, so let's make the best of it. So whatever training you have done this week, again, make the best of it. Take just one thing away from that training and make that a new habit. By doing it small, by starting small, by building up 1% every day. I'd be interested next week to hear how you are getting on with your habits. So again, please do keep me updated as the week goes along. You can tweet me at Mr. D. Lester. Please remember to keep in the Teachers Talk Radio hashtag as well, because um, I'm sure the other Teachers Talk Radio hosts will be interested to see how we are getting on with our habit building. Um, please do stay tuned for all of the other shows that we have, not just over the course of today. I think we've got two more shows today. Uh, we've got Eugene at five and we have got a Twitter space at seven. Um, but now that Teacher Talk Radio is back for the year, please do keep up with us. Please do listen to as many shows as possible. Please do contribute because, of course, the shows would not happen were it not for you. Thank you all so much. Uh, we are actually going to call it a day there today because I would like you now, your homework from me, I suppose, is to go away, think about your habits, think about what habits you want to cultivate, before we come back together next week. And I will be interested to see how you get on. Thank you very much. Have yourselves a great week. And I've had a great time being back with you for breakfast this morning. And I look forward to doing it again very, very soon.